When you've traveled abroad, have you noticed that people in certain countries just seem to be happier? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. With all the stress that comes with the economic crisis these days, it's more important than ever to keep your spirits up. But what is it, really, that makes people happy? NPR journalist Eric Weiner surveyed some European studies on what makes different cultures happy, and then he did some research of his own. He investigated contentedness around the world, from Denmark to Thailand, from Switzerland to Bhutan, and from India to the USA. And he came home with some ideas about what we might learn from each other. There's this concept of worried happiness, and I I find it fascinating, and I think there's something to it. It's the idea that we can be both anxious about our future and happy at the same time. And if you find bliss in music, Margaret Hammond has more ideas for getting in on some of Europe's great classical music venues. Stay with us as we delve deeper into the cultural roots of happiness today on Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, professional musician and tour guide Margaret Hemmen gives us tips on landing a seat for a memorable concert on our next European vacation. She's back with more ideas on how to add the joy of one of Europe's great classical music venues to your travels and to take your calls at 877-333-RICK. But first, we're looking into why some countries are grumpy, even when it seems they should be happier, while other countries, even the ones which might seem to deserve pity rather than envy, just seem more content. Is being happy part of their culture? Is it inborn or learned? Eric Weiner took time off from reporting for NPR to travel to different countries to study the geography of bliss. He first joined us more than a year ago to report on his findings, and today Eric returns to update us on who's happy and why. Eric, good to have you back. It's good to be back with you, Rick. You had a pretty good sense of, uh, according to surveys and so on, which peoples were happy and which were unhappy and why. And then 2008 happened, 2009, we got this financial crisis. It's not just in America. There is no safe haven. The entire world, because of the globalized economy, is in the same tank. How has that affected bliss on this planet? It's a good question, and I get it a lot, and, and I've been thinking about that. I'll say, basically... I don't think that the financial crisis around the world affects happiness quite as much as we think it does. If there is such a thing as a happiness bubble, uh, it is a lot sturdier than, say, the stock or real estate bubble. It really takes a lot to move our national happiness. Now, granted, these are extraordinary times. And if you look historically at countries that have gone through really severe economic downturns, let's say... Uh, Russia and Argentina in recent times have really gone through some tough economic times. Their their happiness levels dropped by about 9 or 10%, which is significant, but it's not as if the bottom fell out and people were suddenly miserable. I mean, the fact is that our happiness depends on a lot more than just how the stock market's doing or how real estate prices are doing. With the one caveat that if you've experienced a economic trauma, say you've lost your job or your home, then yes, you're going to be unhappy for at least a while. Mm. But most of us, fortunately, do not fall into those categories. So we are uh, the worried well. You know, we're mm. we're worried about our economic future. Uh, maybe we've taken a short-term hit, but we're not directly affected in a huge way. So then what you have going on is you have a lot of people who are anxious about their economic future around the world, but they're not necessarily miserable. I think too many news reports in this country sort of make that leap and connect those dots. And and you'll see surveys that show that, you know, people here and abroad are worried about their economic future. Well, of course they are. But does that mean that they're miserable? I think if you ask them the simple question of overall, how happy are you, you might be surprised by the results. And if it does impact their happiness, it's probably in part because of the media fixation on they should be unhappy and they should be anxious. Right, because if a a surveyor (laughs) asks you, you know, are you concerned or anxious about the the economy? Well, of course you're going to say yes, or you'd look like a moron, right? (laughs) Right. On your survey earlier, you found that Iceland, for instance, was one of the most content and happy places on Earth. And Iceland, unfortunately, has had one of the worst hits because of this financial crisis. They're in a whole different mindset right now. Have you gone back to, to revisit Iceland or talk to people in Iceland about how is their state of mind now as before? I have spoken with quite a few of my friends in Iceland via email and telephone calls, 
And this is surprising. They're they're not miserable. I mean, to be sure, they're worried, they're concerned. But a number of people wrote to me and said, look, you know, we are a nation of Vikings or the descendants of Vikings, and they pride themselves on that. Uh, we have a thousand-year history, and, and many of this history was difficult, times of feast and famine. They're used to that. As one person wrote to me and said, look, you know, it's not as if an earthquake hit. The buildings are still standing. We will get through this, and maybe we'll emerge better. Now, maybe there's a bit of trying to put a, a happy gloss, especially for a foreign writer, on the situation there. Uh, there have been protests in Iceland. There has been a change of government. But the society has not collapsed. When I wrote about Iceland a couple of years ago, I, I pointed out that one of the things that makes them happy is this social cohesion, that they are literally one big family, an extended family. Everyone in Iceland is uh, genetically related to everyone else, and there is that sense of sort of we're all in it together. And that, Rick, is one of the key things about how different cultures deal with unhappy times. Uh, do people cooperate? Do they get along? There, there's this concept of worried happiness. And I, I find it fascinating. I think there's something to it. It's the idea that we can be both anxious about our future and happy at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. And I think that's what the people mm. of Iceland find themselves in right now, a state of worried happiness. And if you take the revved up um, metabolism of, of a hot economy, whether it's Iceland or Ireland or the new Eastern Europe as capitalism runs into it, you find people get like on a fast track but they get nostalgic about the good old days when they had time to hang out in the hot tub and just uh, have fun with the grandkids. And my take right. is Icelanders now are realizing, well, we don't have the uh, you know the hot cars or the prospect for lots of international travel, but we do have each other. We do have that conviviality, that multi-generational, old-fashioned, quality lifestyle thing that is much easier to grasp now that the economy's uh, not spinning so fast. That's true. And there have been demonstrated benefits to a recession anywhere. People have fewer heart attacks during a recession uh, because they're not working such long hours. There are fewer traffic accidents because people drive less. Uh, people tend to eat a bit more healthily um, because they are eating in and not going out to a restaurant and getting these giant portions. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like the people of Iceland uh, are glad mm -hmm. that their nation is now mm -hmm. teetering on the edge of <laughs> bankruptcy or that they wished this to happen. But I just I just think it's not as simple as, you know, economic difficulty equals misery. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case in, in any country around the world. Well, you can flip that around and look at Qatar or Dubai, these Arab free trade zones that are in this utopian, like, ridiculous affluence where there's high rises and golf courses and fancy resorts in the right. middle of the desert where all of the hard work is done by Indians and Pakistanis who came in so the local people could trade in their camels and just live in, in these penthouses. First of all, is that, I mean, that's my idea of Dubai and Qatar. Is it like that? And are those people like really happy because they're just living this playboy uh, utopia? Well, you, you painted, a, I mean, an exaggerated but ultimately accurate picture of life there. Let's take Qatar, for instance. Some 85% of the population is non-Qataris, foreigners, as you say, brought in to do the work, uh, which sounds very good. And on the one hand, it is, because that frees up Qataris for a lot of leisure time. But a strange thing happens in these places, and that is the, the locals, that say the Qataris, they start to feel disenfranchised. Uh, they start to feel like they're a foreigner in their own land, because everywhere mm. they look, they see these foreign faces, and they know they're dependent on these foreigners for their wealth, to make the country work. Uh, and the foreigners aren't just doing, you know, menial labor. They're not out in the fields or, or just pumping oil. They're running banks. They're running hotels. They are, in many cases, judges in Qatar. They will hmm. uh, essentially import their judges from other countries. Hmm. Uh, so it, it goes very high up the food chain there. And I think that, in a way, is actually disheartening for the local people. I felt something similar, Eric, in Ireland, even, with 100,000 poles that have been brought in well, right. during the hot Irish economy. And you went to restaurants and hotels and train stations, and all you dealt with were non-Irish people. And I thought, is this affluence? Is this success for Ireland to give their country to other people who are going to work hard? It's a very strange thing. 
as a traveler, it's very disconcerting because I think I, I was in Doha, the capital of Qatar, for about four or five days, and you know, and I sensed that something was wrong with my research, and hmm. I realized it's because I hadn't met any Qataris yet. Yeah. <laughs> I had, you know, met Filipinos and Indians and Pakistanis and Bangladeshis and Sri Lankans, but no Qataris. You have to actually seek them out. Um, but you know, the tricky thing you had mentioned this sort of nostalgia for the good old days of when life was simpler. And I did get that when I finally did meet some Qataris and sat mm. down and, and talked to them extensively that, you know, life was was warmer, I think yeah. they would say. Life was warmer back then. Uh, life was harsher, but in, in a way sweeter. Um, but no one would make that leap and say, we want to go back to yeah. those days because life is also more comfortable. So that's the tricky thing. How do you progress <laughs> economically and very quickly in the case of these countries, but sort of retain... That's the challenge, that, how to have your cake yeah. and eat it, too. The same thing as in older people in Eastern Europe. There, uh -huh. There's this nostalgia, nostalgia for the East. There's even theme restaurants now serving dreary food from the 1960s, just so people <laughs> really? can go back and have a, a vanilla ice cream, you know. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, as you said, they wouldn't trade their, their capitalism away, but they are mm. nostalgic about a simpler time. You, you wrote that Moldova is the uh, least, and I thought it was kind of funny, you wrote in your book, it's the least uh, happy country, and you got a lot of it angry is. Moldovans emailing you since you wrote about them that way, uh, complaining yes. that they were the least happy, and they're really unhappy about it, and you thought, well, you guys still are unhappy. What's they with that? Prove their point. They prove their point, yeah. Well, they're, they're unhappy and now angry, too. Uh, by the way, just, just so people know, Moldova was a part of the Soviet Union, right? So it used to be part of a, a big empire, but now it's neither here nor there. It's like not in Russia. It's not in, well, it's, in the it's EU. It's geographically sandwiched between Romania and Ukraine, uh, two unhappy countries in their own right, but you know nothing compared to Moldova. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, they were part of a big empire. Now they're not. They suffer from what I think is a sort of cultural vertigo. They're ethnically very similar to Romanians, but they've been russified over the last 50 or so years. And uh, many Moldovans don't speak Moldovan. Uh, they speak Russian. Uh, so they don't have the sort of strong cultural bedrock to fall upon that, for instance, the Icelanders do have. And I think that's one of the keys for, you know, how does a country cope with economic difficulty. Do they have a strong culture to fall back on? If they do, great. If they don't, they're in for a hard time. Now, that is a whole new angle that I hadn't thought of, but a strong culture can be gutted and diluted and polluted by an empire that actually plants its own people in there intending to ruin the culture like China's been doing in Tibet or like I think Russia did in Latvia. Uh, or, mm -hmm. or when I, I was just in Iran and I felt the people were so strong with their culture because they're the one real culture in that part of the world that goes back 2,500 years without being created by colonial powers and so on. I'm Rick Steves. I'm yeah. speaking with Eric Weiner, and Eric has written a fascinating book called The Geography of Bliss. We'll compare European and American preconditions for happiness, and we'll take your calls, too, at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Eric Weiner. Eric is uh, 
Well, his name says Weiner. He's a self-confessed grump. He's always been fascinated by what makes people happy and what makes people sad. He's a regular commentator with NPR, and he's taken quite a bit of time out to write a fascinating book called The Geography of Bliss. Eric, when you think about comparing different cultures, um, I've got some some fundamental... uh, I know it's dangerous to make sweeping generalizations, but when you compare Europeans to Americans, we're like the richest people on the planet. We're all embracing democracy, but we've got some fundamental differences. What is it in Europe that makes them happy compared to us and uh, vice versa? That's a good question. Uh, European countries, especially northern European countries, Switzerland, Denmark, etc., tend to be happier than we are in these surveys. The Netherlands I would include in that as well. I think one of the reasons, let's let's talk about Denmark, for instance, because Denmark consistently ranks really in the top three happiest countries in the world. Uh, The Danes have low expectations. In survey after survey, they're asked about expectations, and they have relatively low expectations. We Americans have very, very high expectations. And I think that partly explains the discrepancy. I think if you have low or moderate expectations, you're less likely to be disappointed. You're more likely to be satisfied or content. You're more likely to be happy. And I realize that rubs a lot of Americans the wrong way because we pride ourselves on living in a country where where everything is possible. I just returned from a week's vacation in Disney World. You go to the Magic Kingdom, and the refrain there is, dreams really do come true. They sing it over and over again in the parade there, and they talk about it. And that is a very American idea. And it's great if your dreams do come true, but it's going to disappoint you and make you a little less happy if they don't. So I think more... I say modest expectations among Europeans might partly explain this. Isn't that interesting? I was just in a taxi in Chicago, and there was some guy from Somali or something driving the cab. It was a beat-up old cab, and he was just happily drumming his steering wheel and saying, America, you can win the lottery and be rich. And I thought, well, he'll never be rich, but he was just living in this land where dreams can come true, and he was sort of just to be close to it, he was happy. I was just in Denmark, and it occurred to me there's not a hint of a big gulp society there. They get little cups, and they sip it. They pay twice as much for a little cup as we pay for a big cup, and they just sip it. We have Sarah on the line in Chicago who's got some uh, thoughts about, uh, Sarah, you've got a a Danish-American husband. What's your take on uh, on the Danes? Well, uh, thank you, Rick. You know, before I met my husband, I had never met a family that as a group were as happy with less than these people. I mean, they just can make so little mean so much. Before we went to Denmark last summer, we were there for a couple of weeks, and the study came out that said that the Danes are among the happiest people on earth, just as, as you were just talking about. And our minds immediately went to this idea that the Danes have of coziness. The best thing you can say about somebody is that their house is cozy or their Hmm. party is cozy or whatever. And we just wondered if our assessment of this cultural obsession that they have with coziness, of smallness equaling welcoming or friendliness, is part of their whole way of feeling happy. What did you find on that, Eric? I I like that. I think coziness is a pretty accurate description of Denmark, and a lot of the cities are built on a more human scale, I think most people would agree, than American cities, which are largely built for cars, not people. Look, I mean, one of the conclusions I reach in my book is that happiness is other people, that basically our happiness is determined in large part by the quality and quantity of our relationships with others. So, you know, coziness implies a, a not only convivial, you know, a nice, yeah, a convivial. It, it, it's not just a sort of physical, you know, fireplace no. burning and a mm. nice. It's the idea that you can be close physically, emotionally, intellectually with other people. And I think that Europeans live more closely together in a lot of ways. And that that might partly explain their slightly higher levels of happiness as well. You know, different cultures have different words that are really key to that culture. And I don't know very many Danish words, but one word you got to know when you're in Denmark is hygli. And yeah. hygli is the word for cozy, right, Sarah? Right, right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, so hygli is the theme of Denmark, and they do it well. And it's a very nice thing because I was just in Denmark thinking about this, and everything is well-ordered, and there's beautifully tended bike paths right next to the highways in the middle of the countryside, and people have these little thatched cottages that they've lived in for generations. 
And then you find a demonstration on the streets of uh, Copenhagen, and people are playing Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, and, and it's the uh, anarchists and the hippies and the vegetarians and the, and the potheads over at Christiania demonstrating to keep their freedom over there. So you got the conformity, and you got the free spirits, and you got everything in small convivial portions, and you got the people who pay the highest taxes in Europe that are actually have high expectations and generally satisfied with them. It's a very challenging world for us Americans to go visit when we recognize that arguably they're happier than we are. You're right, Rick, and I think one other advantage that the Danes or the Swiss, the Icelanders have over we Americans is that they're small. These are relatively small countries, relatively homogenous ethnically, and they don't have the burden of being, you know, the world's sole remaining superpower, which I think is not a recipe for happiness. I think actually, to quote E.F. Shoemaker's famous book, Small is Beautiful, not only when it comes to economics, but when it comes to happiness as well. All right. Sarah, thanks for your call. Thank you very much, Rick. Okay. Enjoy Denmark. (laughs) I'm speaking with Eric Weiner, by the way, the author of The Geography of Bliss, Eric, do you find a correlation between democracy and happiness? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> How's that for a definitive answer? I kind of, ex- um, I kind of expected that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no surprise there. You know, for a long time, uh, political scientists and, and happiness researchers were under the belief that there was a direct correlation, that direct relationship, that the more democracy in a country, the happier they are. And that makes sense. Certainly people have more choice, they have more freedom, uh, control over their lives. But then you had this sort of second wave of democracies uh, in the former Soviet republics when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990, 91. And these countries, Moldova included, have not enjoyed a sort of happiness bonus even though they are definitely more democratic and have more freedom than they did under Soviet times, they're not happier, and in some cases, they're less happy. And researchers have been stumped by this. You know, what's going on? It seems to me, and this is my own theory, that democracy is the icing on the cake, but you need to have the cake first. You know, Hmm. you need to have good, strong civic society, a certain amount of fairness, a lack of corruption, and all these other things going on. And then if you have democracy, well, then that's your bonus. Doesn't democracy kind of go with uh, consumer-driven capitalism? And fundamental to that is envy that, that sort of powers the machine. And, and envy is kind of an enemy of happiness. True. But, of course, there are many different shades of capitalism. And, you know, so if we're talking about the relationship between, say, money and happiness, uh, I would say what really matters is how you feel about money. I mean, there have been studies that show that people who are materialistic, you know, irrespective of how much money they actually have, people who are materialistic tend to be less happy than people who are not. So it it tends to be, do you derive a lot of your satisfaction and happiness from having a lot of money or not? Um, The Swiss, for instance. Switzerland's a very wealthy country, but they don't really show off their wealth. It's it's Hmm. not a, you know, if you've got it, flaunt it kind of society. It's an if you've got it, hide it society because they don't want to provoke envy in others. Um, America and some other countries are more individualistic and flashier, I think I'd say. And we have Anis on the line in Sacramento. Thanks for your call, Anis. Hi. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, I was in Thailand uh, in Phuket for a month. It was a very wonderful month. I met wonderful people there. I made a lot of friends. And the one thing I learned was to say sawadi all the time and always to say thank you because they knew thank you very, very well. They didn't even ask me to speak in Thai for that. But they were always very kind and very gracious. So you felt that they were um, happy? They were more than happy. They were, I felt, in a state of bliss. Now, of course, you go to the marketplace, and the people are haggling you to get you to spend your money. But when you get away from that, and you get off to the side, it's just very casual, very friendly, almost everywhere you go. Now, was that related to their their Buddhism, would you say? I would think so. Uh, They are Buddhists at heart, uh, far more than anything else. Of course, now we know we have a bit of a problem with the Muslim area in the southern part of Thailand. But generally, yeah, they, I think that Buddhism really plays a great role, and they're not as judgmental, especially of Americans who are nice to them. Well, let's talk about that with Eric. Eric, what's the correlation between religious nations? Are some nations more religious than others, and does that uh, relate to their happiness? Oh, boy. 
Uh, I'm afraid again, Rick, this is a little bit tricky. Uh, basically, the, the surveys show that people who attend religious services of any kind on a regular basis tend to be happier than those who don't. Um, if you go to church or synagogue or mosque three times a week, statistically, uh, you're going to be a little happier than someone who doesn't. Now, why is that? Is that because of some transcendent spiritual experience? Or is it simply that you're hanging out with like-minded people? And as we've already said, we mm. know that you know that sort of social cohesion makes you happier. It's hard to say. Um, then how do you explain countries like Iceland and Denmark, which are not very religious at all, yet are among the happiest in the world? So mm. it, it's tricky. Um, I would say, though, if I could talk about Thailand for just one moment, um, I agree with the caller that Thailand certainly seems to me to be one of the happier countries in the world. And I attribute that to the Thai attitude actually towards thinking, which is they don't uh, believe in it on a, on a regular basis. <laughs> uh, they actually have an expression that translates as don't think too much or you think too much. And when I first heard this, it, it, it blew me away because I thought, you know, if I'm not happy, it's because my thinking is flawed, you know, corrupted like bad software. Um, but the Thais believe actually that the actual act of thinking can be a sign of mental illness, ah, um, yeah. which which would, would make me very mentally ill, of course, because well, I'm make thinking you, all the time. Well, like Thomas Jefferson yeah. wrote, travel makes a person wiser if less happy. It just makes you more aware of things and, and you, you think about them a lot. If you take these religious countries, okay, they've got other things that turn them on rather than uh, materialism. They're more confident in their salvation. Would that be part of it? Fatalistic. You take a country like India. Um, there's more of a of a sense of fatalism. It's going to happen anyways. You mean? Yeah, that, that that it is not up to your individual striving. You know, in Qatar and, and other Muslim countries, I would ask people, "Are you happy?" And I've started to notice that people were a bit uncomfortable by this question. You hmm. know, and finally, I asked a Qatari friend, "What's going on?" He said, "Well, look, you know." it's really up to God, up to Allah, your happiness. Yeah. Huh. And for you to presuppose, you know, are you happy, it imbues people with a sort of control and an autonomy over their lives that a devout Muslim may feel is not appropriate for human beings. So it does get tricky. I mean, look, personally, I, I wish I could be more fatalistic and just say, you know, hey, whatever happens, my <laughs> life happens. And I think I would be happier for it. Don't you? I mean, or, or sure, if you could just not worry about things that are beyond your control. You know, it's very interesting that Buddhism—they believe that they're really there to suffer. They're not really there to be happy. But for some reason, it, it's almost like a contradiction. They're just happy in spite of it all. Well, I think the Buddhists would say they're there to transcend suffering. <laughs> Ultimately, but but they take the long view. It may not be in this life. It may be in the next life or the next life. And if you if you take the long view that way and believe in reincarnation, gosh, it takes a lot of pressure off of you in this life, doesn't it? You know, you don't have to get everything done in your to do list during this life. You can carry it over to the next. You know, I found I, I'm fascinated by this relative spirituality of different countries. I was just in Iran, which is a theocracy. I found it less spiritual than Turkey, which is a secular government with a more of a thriving grassroots kind of thing going on with their Muslim population. Eric, have you found that there are a couple, of, a handful of countries that, that you would call the most spiritual or religious countries on the planet? That's tricky. Uh, my next book, I should say, is actually going to be about religion and spirituality. So I, I've been but, giving but, this. But some countries are so more far. religious than others. I mean, you think about Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bhutan. Wouldn't they be more religious? Yes, um, more religious in the sense that religion and spirituality imbues everyday life, um, as opposed to let's go to church on Sunday every Sunday. Because, you know, Rick, what I was really looking at in this book was culture. That was my key touchstone. What is the national culture of these places? To the extent that religion affected culture, I wrote about it. But if religion and the sort of national culture were just two separate entities, I sort of left mm. religion alone. Mm -hmm. So that was my interest. And I, I think that you have countries like uh, Bhutan, which is, a, you know, basically a Tibetan Buddhist kingdom, democracy now, where it's hard to separate religious and political life. And you have a country like Iran, where to some extent that's true as well, but you have this sort of theocracy more transplanted on top of right. it's not a citizenry, which, which may not subscribe to it. So it, it, it gets it's very hard to tease it out.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Eric Weiner, a fascinating book he's written called The Geography of Bliss. In my travels in the Indian subcontinent, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of poverty, but I always, joy is the word that comes to my mind. There's that bulk joy of a continent of people that find meaning in their spiritual quest or whatever. And then I was thinking it relates to the joy I saw on people at the end of the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, the, the pilgrimage hike from Paris all the way to northwest Spain to Santiago that people have been doing for a thousand years. And I saw sunburned, tattered, worn-out hiking boot people coming in there, and I saw the joy and the jubilation sweep over them when they finally stepped on that scallop shell embedded in the pavement in front of the cathedral to mark the end of their pilgrimage. And I just thought, wow, there's a lot of joy there, and it's for something in a pilgrimage sense. There's a sort of a happiness you get when you realize there's things bigger than what we are right here. Right. Right, when you feel connected to something bigger, where you don't feel atomized. You know, Jonas Salk, um, inventor of the polio vaccine, was asked, you know, what is his source of happiness or how does he want to be remembered? And he said he wants to be remembered as a good ancestor, you know, that um, to be connected not only to something larger in this life, but when we're gone, to still be connected in a way, to leave fingerprints and footprints behind that uh, won't be erased that quickly. What is the difference between joy and happiness? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I would think that joy is, in a way, a more temporary, uh, fleeting feeling. Very few of us will experience constant joy, but there are probably some people, not me, but some who experience a relatively constant happiness. And, and you know, I'll just add one more thing. They found that people are happiest when they're just about to accomplish something significant or meaningful in their lives. Not when they just did accomplishment or not when it's, you know, way off in the future, but when they're just about to complete an important task. That's when we're at our happiest. So that's when they have meaning, when they have a reason to get out of bed. Right. And when you can see that goal and it's just beyond (laughs) your grasp, that's happiness. If it's in your grasp, you've already got it. You know, your mind is moved on to something else. When it's too far out of your grasp, it, it seems unattainable. But it's when that delicious cake is just in front of you and you're about to dig in. Or, after I'm after sure you've eaten it. a better it, example. <laughs> and after, after you've eaten it, you feel guilty. It's just guilty. There in your gut. Yeah. Whoa. Right, exactly. Eric, it's just so much fun to talk with you and have our callers uh, contributing their ideas of bliss. What a fascinating challenge you've taken on to understand and teach what makes people happy all over this planet. Thanks. I I appreciate it, Rick. And I I will just leave you with my absolutely all-time favorite travel quote. Uh, It's from Henry Miller, a man who did a bit of adventuring in his day. Uh, And he said, "When when it comes to travel, one's destination is never a place, but a new way of seeing things. And that's what I've tried to do in my book and in my life. It's not about getting to Rome or Paris or Tehran or Kabul. It's about you know, putting on a new set of glasses and seeing the world just slightly differently and hopefully in a more happy way as well. Beautiful thoughts. Eric Weiner, author of uh, The Geography of Bliss, thanks so much for uh, tuning us in to something that's really fundamental in how we're all going to try to live our lives. My pleasure, Rick. Next, Margaret Hemmen joins us for more ideas on enjoying the classical music scene on your next trip to Europe. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Martin Lavandovich, and I come from Wales, and I travel with Rick Steves. Music lovers find plenty to get excited about in Europe with its rich classical tradition and its grand concert venues. Travelers who plan ahead can enjoy a performance from one of the world's top orchestras, Or you might just discover a great little ensemble playing at a humble neighborhood church or at a charming local theater. 
Margaret Hemmett is a professional singer with a doctorate in music. When she's not teaching music and voice, Margaret spent the last 30 summers leading tours that take in some of the great music venues in Europe. She's here again to inspire us to enrich our travels by tapping into Europe's rich concert music traditions. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Thank you very much. You know, as a tour guide, you must be painfully aware of how much culture sloppy travelers miss when they go around to these great cultural capitals of Europe. Oh, I think the most planning in the world can't prepare you for all there is to offer. And one of the first things I recommend people do is go immediately to tourist information if they're looking for a planned concert, let's say, or a planned opera, depending on what time of year it is. Um, The other thing you can do, though, sometimes is walk around the streets and simply listen because you would be surprised at what you come across. You know, that's very true. You, You stumble onto some incredible opportunities. There's a lot of musicians scrambling to earn a living in Europe. Exactly. And uh, they're scrambling harder than ever right now, and they have to promote. And you go to the tourist board, and of course, if anything's promoted at the tourist board, it's going to be the concert that's happening tomorrow night. Exactly. They want you there. Now, when you're traveling, I like to distinguish between real cultural events and silly men in tights with powdered wigs touristy (laughs) events. Is there any correlation between quality and the tightness of the tights? Um. Usually a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, if they look like Mozart, and if the guys selling the tickets look like Mozart, they're probably touristy shows that are going to... Well, yeah, you know, And they're fun, and usually they can be in beautiful venues. Well, for instance, the Hofburg Orchestra. You'll find the guys in tights in Vienna advertising concerts for that. Or you'll find some people looking like that out in front of St. Stephen's Cathedral sometimes in Vienna. In Vienna. But and in Venice, everybody looks like Vivaldi. Oh, yes, they do. I've seen lots of pair mutations. Oh, yeah, Venice. of all different ethnicities and uh, genders. Exactly. And they all look like Vivaldi And because everybody wants to hear Four Seasons Well, you'll hear that everywhere. You hear it in Prague. You hear it in Venice. You hear it. So you I name guess, it. I guess when you're traveling, it is fun to... You know, drink white wine in white wine regions and beer in beer regions and whiskey in whiskey regions. In the same way, it's nice to hear Vivaldi in Venice, Mozart in Salzburg, and... Or in uh, Vienna. Dvorak where? Uh, Dvorak in Prague. (laughs) I think it'd be Prague, But you hear Dvorak other places. I mean, he was Bohemian after all, so you will find him actually in small little cities and towns throughout the Czech Republic. But and when you say Bohemian, we don't mean a, a beatnik. But no, we no, no, mean no. a guy that lived I, in Bohemia. I mean, right. <laughs> yeah, the Czech Republic is actually uh, a wonderful place to hear music. I've traveled there a lot, and you go to the smaller towns. They love their music, and it's affordable. I was struck by how expensive concerts are in Vienna and how relatively inexpensive the same quality would be in Prague. Exactly. I mean, is it fair to say for $60 in Vienna, you'd find a, a 20 ticket in Prague. In Prague, yes. Some are more expensive. For instance, there are three opera houses in Prague. You can hear different operas in the National Theater, for example, has the national operas of the Czech composers. So there you could hear pay, Dvorak or Smetana. You pay more money. And then there's the Estates Theater in Prague, for example, which is where Mozart premiered Don Giovanni. And that right. gives you mostly the Mozart operas. And then there's the small Stadtny Oper, which is where you hear Verdi. They have a Verdi festival there during the summer in Prague, of but, all places. But any day of the season, at least, you'll have three or four options in beautiful venues. Exactly. Almost always tickets available the same day are right yes. at the door. I mean, you probably are more tuned into the quality than, than me. I just enjoy the music because I'm mm-hmm. not a professional in that. And I've just been blown away by the value of spending $20 to sit for an hour in a gorgeous setting. And to me, the venue really complements the music. It really does. For instance, again, taking the city of Prague, if you go to the Obechny Dum, which is the municipal house, if you go to the Smetana Hall there, you can hear this incredible concert in a wood hall, and the acoustics are just marvelous. And to know what Smetana means to the Czech people, if you can also accentuate the experience by understanding, man, this is great if I'm not Czech, but if I was Czech, I'd be covered with goosebumps and waving my flag. Exactly. the guy. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Margaret Hemmen about enjoying classical music in our travels through Europe. Chris is on the line in Wisconsin. Chris, thanks for your call. I, I was interested in knowing um, where you would recommend, like in the Prague, Hungary, Bu- Budapest area, or, or Dresden, or even 
Milan to see uh, classical music, in particular Dvorak? Um, that's going to depend very much on the season, I think, and what's being performed at what time. And I know Prague. I happen to have a Prague website uh, that works very, very well for me. It's called prageexperience.com. And you can look really at that website and find exactly what's offered at what time. You can also probably go to uh, Budapest and find also the venues there for hearing Dvorak. Sometimes if you Google the composer and then the year, they will send you to different concert halls in Europe in different cities. For instance, in order to find the music of Mendelssohn, I just uh, Googled Mendelssohn2009.org and found a drop-down menu with a wonderful selection of places that Mendelssohn mm. was going to be performed. So what I would suggest is trying that uh, for Dvorak, because sometimes you'll, I understand trying to find Dvorak naturally in, in Hungary. Uh, you'll find sometimes his concerts coupled with concerts by Brahms, uh, because the two of them were really good friends. And in mm -hmm. fact, Brahms helped uh, Dvorak get his career going. So that would be my suggestion to you. Okay. Do you have any um, recommendations for seeing opera at La Scala in Milan? La Scala has a uh, rather extensive season. This summer, for instance, they're performing Aida and I believe uh, Monteverdi's Orfeo. Just be aware they're not there in August. Mm -hmm. They're there through July, and then they're going to pick up again in the fall. So again, though, look at their website. It would be Teatro alla Scala. Dot com, I believe. And Chris, you know, when there's these uh, very prestigious opera houses, they seem to always make uh, an accommodation for struggling students and musicians and piano teachers mm -hmm, and voice exactly. teachers and tourists who don't have the money for a $80 ticket. And you can yeah. find uh, 5 or $10 tickets uh, the day of the, the event. Of the concert uh, or up, up standing room. Standing room. And yeah. I'm always impressed by how generous they are that way because these are not always terrible spots. Sometimes you have to stand, but you get to experience that music and you get to experience that world-class symphony or opera for an incredible price and to go into La Scala or the uh, Opera House in Vienna uh, for a few bucks is really something. I have found also in Vienna, they always have several hundred uh, $5 standing room tickets. Mm -hmm. And if you know how where to line up, it's very rare you couldn't get a seat or a spot. And then if you decide to just even go cheaper than that, a lot of these people who get the little $5 standing room place, they just want to experience it for half the opera. If you come about halfway through the event and stand outside, you'll find people leaving, tourists leaving, and they've got their tickets. Just ask them for their ticket, and then you can walk right in and oh, resume yeah, their spot. Exactly. And you get to hear uh, the great opera in the great opera house uh, literally for free. Wow. <laughs> So there's your uh, Europe through the gutter trick. <laughs> yes, right. Hey, do you have any um, knowledge of Dresden offerings? I've heard so much about um, the art there. Again, yes. Um, most of the performances in Dresden are actually in, it's an interesting building. It's the old center for the uh, the communist government in the center of Dresden. And again, the best thing you can do is go to Dresden. Just go online and look at Dresden, the city, and then immediately go to the link to concerts or opera. That's the easiest and quickest way to find out what's being performed when. Chris, good luck finding Dvorak in Europe, okay? Yes, thank you very much for your time. It was wonderful to have your advice. Thank you. Have You're welcome. And George is on the line in Austin, Texas. Hi, George. Thanks for Hi, your Rick. call. Thank you for taking the call. Hi, George. Um, my wife and I are planning a trip to Vienna, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if uh, either one of you have some recommendations for uh, the best venues or better venues for classical music in Vienna. Oh, boy, do I. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> all right. First of all, what I would suggest is that you go to the website austria.info, and that is going to get you then basically to Vienna. The Vienna Staatsoper is there. That's the Vienna Opera that we all know about. And the Vienna Philharmonic is also still there. They perform in the building called the Musikverein, uh, the Music Society building. And also, I mean, there are any number of wonderful organizations. The Volksoper, that does lighter operas, uh, does Mozart, but it also does operetta. I think the website for Vienna, Wien, dot 
info.at, I believe, will get you there. That will give you all of the listings for the major performing groups there. You know, a couple of other thoughts, George. They have this rat house, the city hall, Mm -hmm. that has a huge screen put out in front of it with giant speakers. That's the summer, though, I think. In the summer, yeah. yeah. It's the summer, And a a thousand seats set up. It's a big food circus, so they've got all sorts of interesting... It's a great um, social scene for all the young singles in in Vienna and people who missed the opera, couldn't get a seat in the opera. And then they show these incredible classical performances up on this giant screen, and it's really quite an exciting event in music for Vienna, it's basically free to hear the the concert. That uh, you're right though. That's yeah, an outdoor it's in July the, and August in, in the summer. Yeah. My first trip to Europe back when I was a kid was to visit the Bursendorfer factory, the finest, most expensive piano in the world in Vienna. Right. right. And they have a Bursendorfer Hall where they give a lot of concerts. The other thing you can do is go to the Augustiner Church if you want to hear a beautiful concert that is not on the beaten track, but it is the best. Mass at 11 o'clock on Sunday, uh, the Augustiner. It's on the uh, Josefplatz. It's right across yeah. the entrance of the riding school. Right. You can hear a Mass on Sunday at 11, usually with great soloists, orchestra, and a chorus. They perform Mozart, Schubert, Masses. That would be one thing I would definitely do, and that one is actually free. And a lot of tourists are very frustrated by trying to go to the boys' choir concert mass, and you yes. end up, it's a huge mob scene. You don't even see them when you're in the little church, if you can get into the church, because they're out of sight, and a lot of people are in the narthex watching it on a live, live video feed or frustrated not even getting in there. And ironically, I think you get a better musical experience at the Augustiner Kirk. I, I agree. And you'll have no problem getting seats there. The other thing you can do, though, on your way to the Augustiner Kirche is you can stop by the courtyard where the boys' choir are singing. You can actually stand outside and listen. You can listen. And then go on to the Augustiner Mass. A couple other tips about sightseeing for music lovers in Vienna. They made a Mozart house, a Mozart museum in Vienna to it's coincide wonderful. with one of his... Uh, um, Actually, I didn't like it. <laughs> oh, you didn't? No. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> well, maybe, but to me, I like the one in Salzburg much better. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I get real frustrated in a museum when it's just photocopies of artifacts and stuff without a lot of actual artifacts. There's something going on, though, this summer there. Uh, actually, in the Mozart house, which is where he uh, composed The Marriage of Figaro, they are going to feature snippets of Haydn's music there because Mozart and Haydn were friends. This is the big Haydn year in oh, Austria. So that's right. So Haydn will be featured in the Hay- Mozart house. Actually, yes. Maybe making the Mozart house better. But as far as I'm concerned... In Salzburg, you've got the Mozart Birth House and the yes. Mozart Von House, right? Exactly, the two. And the Birth House, all the tour groups are there, and it's just pandemonium, and it's great to see his little violin and stuff. But to me, it seemed like a very commercial romp compared to the Von House, where you've got a wonderful audio tour. Exactly. Can, but I think my favorite music museum in Europe is the Haus der Musik right. in Vienna. And there, you really celebrate the Viennese music heritage thanks to all of these Habsburgs that just loved music. I mean, some right. of the Habsburgs were quite good musicians themselves, I think. Right. My dad used to be a band director, and I've always sort of envied that. And uh, you've actually got this fun, have you tried this, Margaret, where you get to conduct the Vienna Philharmonic with your computer wand? Yes, and uh, they throw down <laughs> their instruments when and I do it. They drop their bows and they laugh at you. They ridicule you. But you can make them go faster and slower <laughs> and fermata or whatever. Hey, George, enjoy your upcoming travels, and I hope you get into some good spots in Vienna for some music. Okay. Well, thanks for your time, and also thanks for your, uh, your travel logs, your travel journey, too. That helps a lot. Oh, good. that's great. Thanks, okay. George. Thank Bye, you. George. Jen's on the line in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Jen. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I've got a question for you about classical music. We especially enjoy pipe organ concerts in Europe, and London has a great guide, so you can see what's coming up in the next week. We were wondering if you knew of any other such guides in other cities or other good ways to track down pipe organ concerts when we travel around there. Boy, um, I don't know particularly what website you could go to for that, but most of the big cathedrals have pipe organs. You know, look at the posters. When you go right. into a church, they're generally, if there's any event coming up in the next couple of days, it'll have a poster by the door, and right. it'll say Orgel Concert or something, and you yeah. can guess it's an organ concert. Also remember, uh, virtually every tourist board in Europe that you'll find on the main square or at the freeway on-ramp or out at the airport has an English language this week or this month or this fortnight list of concerts. And if you ever want a free concert, it's usually often going to be a pipe organ. Right. And they go every Tuesday in Harlem, this in 
incredible pipe organ that Mozart There's also so in Vienna, for example, in the afternoon uh, at 3 o'clock, there's in the St. Peter's Church, there's always an organ concert. And Paris, Notre Dame de Paris, always has an oh, organ concert Have you heard there. Daniel Roth play in the Saint-Sulpice? Yes, I have. Oh, my goodness. Daniel Roth, I think he's arguably the greatest active organist in your playing the pipe organ in Saint-Sulpice. And after the first mass, a little door opens in the back of the nave, and organ aficionados and a few lucky tourists go in there, and they scamper up this little tight uh, spiral staircase, like 16th notes, I always think, and they get up into this loft, and it's a musty old loft, and you see these giant treadmills that people would go up and down on like like slaves, you know, to power the big pipe organ before, <laughs> before the age of electricity to power these organs. And then you go into this loft and you're right there with Daniel Roth on this incredible organ. It's kind of ramshackle. And you see on the wall the lineage of who's played that organ over the last years, all the way back to Vidor, isn't he a famous organist? I believe so. Yeah, yes. and uh, it's such a privilege to be up there watching him perform. It's free. It's every Sunday that he's working and, and he's in town, and it's just a, one of those magical experiences you can have if you have the information. Well, I would say one of the most important things is just uh, use your initiative a little bit and uh, find the tourist boards, find the churches, talk to people. You can usually find a concert in an afternoon or an evening. Sometimes you just come into town and you find out that night there's a great concert playing, for example, in St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna or any of the great churches. You know, they usually always have them. It's one thing to see that beautiful cathedral or concert hall, but to be there for an actual concert uh, and to hear it filled with music, oh, that really brings it to life. Jan, good luck on your search for good pipe organ music in Europe. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for your call. Alrighty, bye-bye. Okay, bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring ways to enjoy classical music in our travels, and we've been joined by Margaret Hemmen. Margaret has a website where you can learn more about her music. It's margarethemmen.com, M-A-R-G-A-R-E-T-H-E-M-M-E-N.com. We'll also list that in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Thanks for the inspiration to weave music appreciation in with our travels. You're welcome, Rick. The sweetest sounds I ever hear are still inside my head. The kindest words I ever know are waiting to be said. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to National Public Radio for their studio help today. You'll find links to our guests and a forum to share your comments and travel stories in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. We'd be happy to have you join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travellers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from 36 exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe, from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free tour catalogue and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.